0: audio studios podcasts radio news you're listening to the bloomberg balance of power podcast catch us live weekdays at noon eastern on apple carplay and android auto with the bloomberg business app listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on youtube
1: We also have to bring you an important conversation live from Capitol Hill. Joining us now on both Bloomberg Television and Radio is Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, who sits on the House Intelligence Committee and also just returned from a visit to Ukraine where she met with President Vladimir Zelensky. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being with us today. As we question now the fate of this supplemental package that would provide $60 billion in aid to Ukraine in the House, can you tell us first what you saw and heard? What happens if Ukraine does not get this aid?
2: The provision of this aid through this national security border, this national security uh, supplemental is of the utmost importance. It is dire importance to our national security. And on the ground, when we were in Kyiv, what we kept hearing from Uh, Ukrainian military officials, from President Zelensky himself, but importantly also from U.S. officials uh, at the U.S. Embassy, is how incredibly vital this aid is to uh, Ukraine's ability to defend itself, to defeat Putin, uh, to regain more of its territory, to protect its citizens, and ultimately to defeat Russian aggression and Vladimir Putin's army.
3: Well, reality seems to be biting pretty hard here, uh, Congresswoman. I appreciate the message that you're delivering today, but your speaker says this is DOA, that this funding will not even get a vote in the House of Representatives. And the calendar looks pretty challenging right now. Even if this money does get passed, it's gonna take a long time. Do we need to be honest with ourselves or honest with Ukraine about what's happening in your House of Representatives?
2: The reality is that one person, The speaker of the house has the ability to bring this bill for a vote if he were to bring the bill for a vote today it would pass with an overwhelming majority this bill would deliver vital support to our ukrainian allies it would deliver vital support to our israeli allies this bill would deliver vital humanitarian aid to stabilize a region that is currently destabilized and this bill would support our partners and our allies in Taiwan, because make no mistake, right now, China is watching, Iran is watching, and Vladimir Putin is watching. As the world is questioning, will the United States continue to be a global leader for democracy in support of freedom and American values? Will the United States actually take steps and work in its own, our own best national security interests and pass this bill? And that decision comes to down to one man. Is he going to choose the national security priorities of the United States, bring this bill forward? I don't even care if the speaker votes for it himself, he just needs to bring the bill. Because the reality is, failure to bring this bill is an abdication of our responsibility, it is an absolute capitulation to Vladimir Putin, and it endangers our country. So there's no other option but for us to bring it.
1: But Congresswoman, theoretically, there is another legislative option that could go around the speaker, a discharge petition. Are you effectively telling us today that you don't think that stands a real chance of working?
2: Oh, Oh, I think all options are on the table. But I think it's tragically sad that we are trying to come up with procedural avenues around the most simple and straightforward manner. We're the House of Representatives. We're supposed to take votes up or down. This bill represents a major priority for our security. And so, yes, I am happy to look at all of the other contingencies we could put in place if we are dealing with the reality that the Speaker of the House doesn't want to protect our country and our national security interests. Uh, But the fact that we're actually having to plan for these sorts of contingencies uh, is, in my mind, tragic. I'll continue working with my colleagues to make those plans because we need this bill to pass. Uh, But the, the bottom line is, it could pass today if only the Speaker would bring it.
3: Well, you wonder what's going on here. Some have suggested there's a bit of gaslighting going on uh, at the hand of of Donald Trump. That as long as the speaker's on the phone with Mar a Lago, this is never going to happen, Congresswoman.
2: You know what? I that's one step even further. The idea that a former president uh, and you know now candidate for president would want to stand in the way of the United States Congress protecting our own national security interests. Uh, The United States Congress, House of Representatives, passing a bill that passed with the support of 70 senators, Democrats and Republicans, Uh, it is absolutely just ridiculous. Uh, that Donald Trump would be on the phone with the speaker and encouraging him to do anything other than bringing a bill forward that protects our interests, that protects our values, and that ensures our national security interests are prioritized.
1: And you mentioned that you think Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is watching this very closely. I do have a question pertaining to Russia for you, Congresswoman, given your seat on the Intel Committee. The chair of that committee, Mike Turner, posted, uh, put out a statement today saying he was asking the president to declassify all information related to a serious national security threat. Congresswoman, we've seen reporting that this is about Russia. Can you confirm that?
2: Um, I respect you for, ans- for asking that question, but as a former intelligence officer and current member of the Intelligence Committee, I'm going to uh, you know, just defer to the statement that the chairman has made and not provide any additional comment on that.
1: Well, Congresswoman, could you at least tell us if this should concern us? Should we be eminently worried about a threat here wherever it's coming from?
2: I think we should always be concerned of the threats that are targeting the United States. Uh, There will always be foes the world round. We know them uh, economically and militarily, China, Iran, North Korea, Russia. And that is why we must pass this national security supplemental. Um, And particularly at a time when we do see a statement coming out from the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, uh, noting that there are uh, specific threats at this time, uh, that there have been specific briefings about. Uh, There's no time like the present for us to actually focus on our national security and, and push this bill forward.
3: I realize you don't want to talk about this, Congresswoman, as a former CIA officer. I wonder if you think this is irresponsible for the chairman to put something out like that without telling people what the heck it means.
2: Um, I so it's not an issue of want; it's an issue of what I legally uh, can do, and I so I can't disclose any information related to what I've been briefed on. Uh, and I am aware that the uh, all statements uh, there's been significant you know discussion within the intelligence community about what can be made public or not. Uh, and so I'll defer to the chairman uh, for what regarding what he put out. But um, I you know in legally uh, and with my responsibility to protect classified information, will not comment beyond uh, what it is that he put out in his very brief uh, statement
1: all right congresswoman well certainly we respect that we appreciate you answering what you can on a a different related matter joe was mentioning the legislative calendar how it may not favor passage uh, of emergency aid and in part that's because we're just a few legislative days away from potentially a partial government shutdown the deadline is march 1st you're going to be out of session for a few weeks between now and then can it be
2: averted if so how This is another question where, you know, when Speaker Johnson stepped forward and said he wanted to be Speaker, uh, that puts him and his leadership team in charge of the calendar. Uh, Certainly I think it's totally appropriate if Speaker Johnson wants to say, you know what, not only do we have this supplemental, uh, this national security supplemental to do, but we also must fund the government. We also need to do FISA 702 reauthorization. We also need to focus on FAA reauthorization. Uh, Let's uh, cancel that district time everybody come back to Washington, stay in Washington until we get this done. Uh, I would be wholly supportive of of, of Republican leadership choosing to do that because you're right, there's limited time and there is much to do. Um, And particularly when we do see, you know, floor time being spent impeaching uh, Secretary Mayorkas, rather than actually putting forth the government funding that will ensure Border Patrol has the dollars they need to actually enforce the current laws broken or in need of improvement, though they may be, uh, the idea that we're spending time on that and not funding vital agencies like Border Patrol, uh, like you know, uh, our military, et cetera, uh, is, is, you know, I think it, it speaks to the sorts of priorities that are currently being put forward. Uh, but the limited calendar, that is of the majority's doing. And it is fixable if they want to keep us here. Uh, and I would be wholly supportive of that.
3: We'll let you get back to uh, your day in just a moment here. We only have a minute left, Congresswoman. If Mike Johnson passes a CR to keep the government open, will he be fired?
2: You know, I I, I can't imagine... Um the reality that, well, I can't predict what my Republican colleagues would do. I would say the fact that we live in a world where a speaker uh, is routinely uh, choosing not to govern because that might lead to his ouster by his right-wing flank. Uh, you know, that is everything that is wrong with the United States Congress. I wish that he would say, I'm a speaker of the House. My job is to ensure that governance is occurring. Therefore I will bring bills for a vote, vote for them, vote against them. That's the prerogative of each individual member. But yeah. to actually keep us from governing because he might lose his job, it's, it's a sad reality uh, and one I wish that he would uh, push through and not be fearful of.
3: We're glad you could talk to us today. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, live from Capitol Hill, only here on Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
3: With news today from the New York Times Kaylee, that's very concerning about what we're hearing from Ukraine. You've heard of a hypersonic missile that Russia has this technology. Kiev is claiming that it's been used.
1: It has evidence, it's uh,
3: For the first time. The State Department, the Pentagon trying to confirm this. Uh, but this is a government-run Kiev Scientific Research Institute of Forensic Expertise that we're hearing from here, concluding that a 3M22 Zircon missile Was used in an attack on February 7th that targeted cities across Ukraine. This is a big deal, Kaylee, because these missiles could evade our own Patriot defense missile systems that we're providing. Ukraine.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the concern here, is that hypersonic missiles would be essentially impossible or just extremely difficult to actually shoot down. And Mm -hmm. as we're having a live conversation about what additional lethal aid the U.S. could be providing Ukraine going forward, is there actually anything we could provide that would help them counter this specific threat?
3: That's right, because we don't have this technology. And I know that we are working on it, but it's something that we wanted to talk to Kelly Grieco about from the Stimson Center, a senior fellow with The Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program. It's great to see you, uh, Kelly. You're an expert in asymmetrical warfare. You understand the stakes on the ground here in Ukraine. This sounds like a game changer, is it?
4: Yes. Well, first, thank you for having me. I I will say that I was uh, skeptical of this reporting that the Russians had actually used what is a true hypersonic um, cruise missile. Mm -hmm. But I... I'm a little taken aback that the United Kingdom's intelligence put out a statement today uh, essentially confirming uh, that they believe this was in fact a true hypersonic missile that the Russians used
1: and if that's the case how do you counter that if this is going to be a live potential force being used against Ukraine in this ongoing conflict
4: well i think the good news is that these are going to be very expensive weapons so if they if this is really the case indeed the case that it was used i don't think russia will have large stockpiles of these weapons and uh they're choosing a very expensive way frankly to go about destroying uh ukrainian infrastructure uh by using these kinds of weapons it will be extremely difficult for the ukrainians to defend against this because this kind of weapon is moves so quickly. And because it moves so quickly, it means that Ukrainian air defenders have very little time to identify this and intercept it.
3: Kelly, we've spent a bit of time talking about F-16s and whether they could help Ukraine close the skies, as President Zelensky uh, likes to say. You've had contrarian views on this. I wonder if there are any other means to help Ukraine close the skies considering a new threat like this.
4: No, I mean, I think in terms of this specific weapon, this hypersonic weapon, I think it will be very difficult, given existing systems, uh, to be able to defend that. And it's not as though we're keeping something back stateside um, from from the Ukrainians in that regard. This doesn't really exist. I do think, though, there's a broader question here, instead of focusing just on this particular missile, which is that I'm quite concerned about Ukraine's air defenses at this point. Um, You know, we're seeing regularly that they're intercepting missiles and drones, and I am concerned about what the stockpiles on their air defense systems look like at this point, um, particularly given we're no longer sending more missiles and other countries have limited uh, supplies. So as
1: we have Congress now grappling with the question, specifically the House, as to whether or not they are going to provide any more aid to Ukraine, it is now in the hands of Speaker Johnson uh, and the Republican majority in large part. How soon do you think Ukraine is at risk of full depletion of the ammunition of of the lethal aid the U.S. was providing?
4: Yes, I mean, this is a closely guarded secret in terms of uh, exactly what they have left in terms of their stockpiles of air defenses and um, ammunition. I think the ammunition story, it's a little bit easier to tell because we can, um, based on reports with soldiers on the ground, are talking about how much they're rationing um, their ammunition. You know, I think one thing I just say is that my colleague Emma Ashford and I recently wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, talking about Ukraine's need to really adopt a defensive strategy. And I think as we're thinking about supplementals and if we are potentially going to, you know, continue some kind of funding, I think we need to be really targeted in what kinds of systems we're providing to Ukraine. And so I would really focus this on air defense. I would focus it on artillery and I would focus it on defensive works fortifications. Uh, concrete fortifications that are make it very difficult for Russia to try to take more territory.
3: We've heard uh, the extent to which, and this is from intelligence in Estonia, the extent to which Russia is lapping Ukraine when it comes to munitions specifically, old-fashioned shells, the stuff that we just can't make fast enough, never mind get money uh, to produce for ukraine we started our conversation talking about hypersonic missiles how about the most old-fashioned mortar rounds that ukraine needs kelly
4: you're absolutely right this is actually the most important thing are these old-fashioned uh not as expensive to hypersonics but it's really this is an artillery war very much an artillery war and i think this is are the lack of artillery right now for ukraine and also its lack of manpower? we're seeing a lot of reports i think that are very concerning coming out of ukraine but not being able to get the recruits it needs for demand its front lines and debates they're having about recruiting you know having another call up um and so it's partly about getting them more uh ammunition but ukraine actually is also having some real difficulties i think internally about the future direction of the war. And I do think this is a place, again, Mm. where we do have some leverage, particularly if we decide to provide more aid, that we should be making it clear that we would like this to be about doubling down on a defensive military strategy.
1: Well, of course, Kelly, in this supplemental aid package, it's not just about providing aid for Ukraine, but providing aid for Israel as well and there's an ongoing conflict as we know between Israel and Hamas we actually just were getting headlines out from Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu who said Israel will fight until victory including in Rafah, that they will operate in Rafah after civilians are allowed to leave as we are now moving to the kind of to new stages of this conflict between Israel and Hamas what is it that Israel needs from the United States in terms of aid?
4: Yeah so You know, I think in terms of Israel, it's probably more going to be about munitions, um, replaced munitions. Some artillery, because they are using a considerable amount, but my guess is it's probably more high end missiles um, because they're doing a lot, they're conducting a lot of strikes. Uh, So I think they're looking for for more of those kinds of systems. They're not necessarily there's not necessarily competition as much between what Israel needs and what Ukraine needs in terms of these supplementals. Mm. Um, So so I guess that there's that's the one piece of good news for the U.S. industrial base.
3: Boy, well, I guess we could use that in the meantime. uh, What is in store for Ukraine? We only have a minute left, Kelly, in the next month. When will we know if this was real?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what we need is for U.S. intelligence to come out um, and confirm it. And I'd I'd like to see that and more information about this particular, um, how they confirmed it, Um, you know, what evidence was used to confirm that this was actually truly a hypersonic uh, missile.
1: All right, Kelly Grieco, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Kelly Grieco, joining us from the Stimson Center. She's a senior fellow there with the Reimagining of U.S. Grand Strategy Program And interesting to contrast the conversations we're having about the military reality on the ground in Ukraine versus yep. the reality on the ground in Capitol Hill mm-hmm. and a reluctance to get this across the line.
3: Yeah, there are two different worlds uh, right now, but we're getting used to that scenario here in Washington, Kaylee. We'll have a lot more straight ahead on Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
1: We want to head now back up to New York, where our very own David Weston, host of Wall Street Week, is joined for a conversation with Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC.
5: David. Yeah, Kayleigh, somebody you know well, actually, Gary Gensler is the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Thanks so much for being here with us in New York. No, I'm it's so a terrific to Washington. be here on Valentine's Day, no How about last. that? Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you're taking care of that. I, I, I hope, <laughs> well, but you are with that great wife of yours. Yeah, I, I did it first thing in the morning. All so right. let's first talk about the news of the day, this uh, typographical error, apparently, from Lyft. It's too soon, I assume, for you to know what happened, and you don't talk about any cases. But I want to ask a more general question about fat fingers. Is it part of your jurisdiction to make sure that publicly traded companies have certain mechanisms in place to minimize? We can never eliminate mistakes, but to minimize them.
6: Well, so it's, it's really part of their responsibility. You use the term fat finger. It could be a, a trading shop that sends a flood of orders to a, an exchange. In, this, in the old days, they called it a fat finger because somebody's yeah, finger hit. Yeah. Now it could be in an algorithm. Or, or even that your, your filings, your press releases and your annual reports are accurate. So that's really up to them. But yes, we have a role at the Securities and Exchange Commission to oversee to make sure that people uh, don't uh, defraud the public uh, and that they publish accurate
5: financials. So when something like this happens, you call somebody up and say, are we looking into this to just make sure there wasn't something fishy going (laughs) on?
6: I can't speak of individual things, but let me step back. So I'm chair of a 5,000 person agency. (laughs) A quarter of our agency does enforcement. Another quarter does examination. They don't call me up. I don't call them up on a daily basis, say, look at this. They're they're really talented, David. They they figure out what to. We literally get something like 40 to 50,000 tips, complaints, and referrals a year and they have to figure out which ones to pursue, which ones not to. Um, uh, And so occasionally I read about things in the press and I go, oh, I didn't know we were investigating that. That's a really, that's great. Our Boston office is on that.
5: Another subject very much in the press, has been for some time now, obviously, is Bitcoin, the ETF spot Bitcoin that you approved. And as I understand it, part of the reason you did it, the explanation for it was you felt that the CMA futures Bitcoin uh, situation would be good enough to indicate if there's any market manipulation going on. Are you far enough into it to know whether that theory holds true, that in fact you can tell from the CME futures trading what might be going on with Spot?
6: So it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but um, several years ago, back in 2021, there was a product that went live, so to speak, um, uh, an exchange-traded fund wrapped around these Bitcoin futures at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. and then. A different set of products c- came to us and asked a list on the stock exchanges. And while we had denied like two dozen of these over about five years, a court in, in Washington said, no, they thought we had not gotten that right and they remanded it back to us. And I thought the, the really the most sustainable thing forward was to approve these given the court ruling. Um, in terms of the statistics, we really do look out to ensure, as best we can, there's not fraud and manipulation. But one of the challenges on the Bitcoin markets, David, is so much of it's traded on trading platforms that are non-compliant with our laws. Now, Bitcoin's not a security, but they're trading on those platforms a lot of other crypto tokens, without prejudging anyone, one, have to be careful. Um, that uh, with hundreds of other crypto tokens on there, likely there's other uh, securities. And we, we're in court in a number of these cases in front of various judges and panels. And, um, and so the American public, when you're investing in something like Bitcoin, to be aware, one, it's a highly speculative asset. Number two, it's generally trading on some platform that is not fully compliant with the securities laws for other things they're doing. And number three, I would mention is, think about what use case. What is the actual use case? When you buy 100 shares of XYZ stock, you kind of know what's behind that company, what the there there is.
5: Uh, you said you're not gonna prejudge. I wouldn't expect you to prejudge. So let me ask you to prejudge. <laughs> uh, yeah, David, I figured that. Uh, a, a, no, a big question people are asking is Ethereum. Is there a principal difference, a reasonable difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? Now, I understand you'll have to have an application to look at all the details and stuff, but just in a general sense, is there a distinction between the two for this purpose?
6: So so you help the American public understand why I'm not going to answer that, (laughs) because I am one, just one member of a five-member commission, but two, there's various applications in front of our commission. And just as you wouldn't want a, you know, a judge to prejudge, a commissioner shouldn't prejudge, those applications are in front of us right now.
5: Okay, let's talk about the disclosure of climate issues, which has been pending before the commission. Uh, and it has not come out yet, uh, and it's not clear why. Can you give us a sense of the timetable on when you may have those
6: regulations? So let me just step back. So the Securities and Exchange Commission is not a climate regulator. We're not a regulator of climate risk. But we oversee companies raising money in the public. And uh, they disclose their material risk to you, or they're supposed to disclose their material risk, out of rules that have been around for decades. And many of those companies are already making significant disclosures. I think something like 90% of the top 1,000 companies in the US by market cap disclose something about climate. Over half do disclose. Their greenhouse gas emissions. So, there we have a role to bring some consistency, some comparability. You can compare and contrast. That's our role. It's a securities market role, not a climate role. You asked about timing. Timing, yeah. Ah, there, the great question. We proposed that rule back in March of 2022. We tend to take somewhere in the order of a year and a half to two years to. Uh, adopt rules if we adopt them. Can't prejudge. But I would say here's the one wrinkle to this, my friend. 16,000 public comments we got. 4,400 of them unique, different comments. We not only have to read them, we have to consider them, we have to think about what adjustments we make. That, that's the biggest docket of comments we've ever received on a role. So. That's part of why it's you know we 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 do our
5: work carefully. Well, I'm curious about behind the scenes what you take into account, and one thing's very specifically: we have an election year this year. You might have noticed there may be changes in the Congress, in the presidency. There's a Congressional Review Act uh, that says basically if you don't get some of these rules out before something like six months before the election, they can be reversed by the next Congress. Do you even take that into account in thinking about the timing of bringing regulations out?
6: Look, I, I I try not to have this managed by the clock and mm. you know everybody says oh no come on. Yeah. No, it, it's really about getting it right and, and allowing that staff to work their their part, the economists, the lawyers, the policy folks, the five commissioners to weigh in. Um, but we're certainly aware, I mean, Congress is a really important part of, you know, they, they ask a lot of questions <laughs> about every one of our uh, important initiatives but this climate risk disclosure. But again, uh we want to get it right and not against
5: the clock. Uh you also have just brought out a regulation involving hedge funds and trading in U.S. treasuries. A lot of complaints about it, a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth, if I can call it that, on part of some of the hedge funds. Uh do you take into account the possibility of challenges in court in putting together regulation? Because well, you're going to get challenged. Do you shape the regulation, try to minimize the chance of being overturned by the Court of Appeals? Uh, 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 It's going
6: to be a yes but let me just answer something what we've done is the u.s treasury market is the base of the rest of our capital markets it's also how when you talk to chair powell or sometimes you talk to former secretary summers about monetary policy it's how we do our monetary policy so the treasury market is so critical it's how we also maintain our dollar dominance around the globe So what we've had is a series of four or five rules around the U.S. Treasury market, central clearing, and yes, something about the dealers, and by the way, it's mostly about something called principal trading firms, not hedge funds, (laughs) not hedge funds. But to your question, we live within the law, and we live within how the courts interpret the law, and ultimately the Supreme Court writes the law of the land as, you know, the great Chief Justice Marshall once wrote 200 years ago. So we do take that into consideration, and we're appropriate, we pivot, we moderate, take it into consideration, um, and it's critical that the American public have confidence in their SEC, but it's also critical that a rule be sustained in court because then it can actually help investors and issuers for
5: hopefully years to come. Gary, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. That's Gary Gensler, chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Back to you, Kaylee and Joe.
3: David Weston, we thank you, of course, David, the host of Bloomberg's Wall Street Week and a fascinating conversation there that we're glad we could bring to our TV and radio audiences worldwide. They covered a lot of ground, Kaylee, uh, mm-hmm. and this is uh, this is your wheelhouse. When it comes to climate rules and timeline, no concern uh, by the chairman about a potential change in administration with a lot of work left this year
1: yeah no concern expressed saying sure. he's operating in the absence of a timeline in mind though the congressional review act that david asked about mm-hmm. is a very real thing With a certain amount of legislative days you could We're have a future congress there. in which the there potentially could be an overturning of, of some of these rules that the sec as a regulator has proposed he is was right to point out that this is just a proposal. They've received a ton of feedback on it, Mm. thousands of comments, because there has been a great deal of pushback specifically On Scope 3 emissions, concern about what it would mean for the supply chain, for even things like small farms to be able to report these kind of disclosures. And it's kind of that level of disclosure that really Mm -hmm. has received a lot of the pushback. And what we're waiting to see if it ends up in the final rule, if and when we get it, we didn't really get a lot of clues there from the chairman as to when that will come.
3: He plays it pretty close to the vest just as a rule, wouldn't budge on Ether, an Ether ETF. Mm. Does that mean we're getting close to a decision?
1: Potentially. He hasn't actually said whether he thinks it's a security or a commodity. And there are more filings for spot Ether ETFs. We got another one from Franklin Templeton just this week. And that's what a lot of crypto markets are looking ahead to. They've got a
3: lot to clear through before the end of this year. He's a busy Uh, man. Yeah. Fascinating conversation with uh, Kaylee Lines. I'm Joe Matthews. Stay with us on the fastest show in politics. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
3: Welcome to the Valentine's Day edition of Balance of Power. We are now down to two. I was told there'd be no math, but we have to do a little bit today. A two-vote margin, essentially, for Speaker Mike Johnson. If you put this together, follow me what happened in New York three last night. Democrats flipped the seat that once belonged to George Santos. We are now at a 219-213 majority with three vacancies. That means Mike Johnson can only lose two to get anything done here. So the walls may be closing in. As for that race, and we're going to talk about that with Don Levy. Aren't we glad Don Levy's back today from Siena College poll. They called it Tom Swasey wins, but it was by a wider margin, about 8 points. The poll showed him up by 4. Either way, it changes the math here in Washington in a Congress and a House that was already having trouble getting anything done. Or maybe we haven't gotten anything done. That's where we start with Billy House, who might be the last person left on Capitol Hill today, Billy, it's great to see a Bloomberg Congress reporter. Uh, if my math is right here, Mike Johnson's job just got a lot more difficult, right, Billy?
7: That's correct, because although 219 versus 213 is six votes, uh, tie votes go to defeat. In other words, you got to get more than a tie if you're going to pass a bill.
3: There you go. And so uh, we actually saw a tie almost last week when they tried to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas and Al Green showed up, and things started to get uh, a little more complex. Republicans had to take the fall on that bill so they could do it again, Billy, and it happened last night. This says everything to me. We've had an historic impeachment of a cabinet secretary, the Homeland Security Secretary. He was impeached by one. That says to me, following the election, that vote could not be duplicated tonight. They actually managed to thread the needle on this, Billy.
7: You're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, there were two votes on both sides of the aisle that weren't, yeah, so four, a total of four that weren't cast. Uh, two Democrats uh, couldn't make it to town, and two Republicans apparently didn't want to cast that vote. But you're, you're correct. Uh, a margin of one is not a big margin.
3: And now that they've flipped New York Three to Democrats. That would be a tie again if they held the vote tonight. So good time, I, I guess, on, on the part of Mike Johnson, Billy, the conventional wisdom here in Washington is that the impeachment goes to die in the Senate, that we don't even see a trial. What are you hearing?
7: Well, what we do know from uh, uh, the Senate and, and and Senator Majority Leader Schumer's office is that uh, uh they do not expect the articles to be. And there's a solemn sort of Masonic march of the articles over from the House to the Senate. If you might remember the <laughs> yeah. Trump impeachments, uh, this won't it occur till after the Senate returns uh, on January. I'm mean, February 27th. And and then a uh, uh, the Senate would be sworn in as jurors and a trial will start. Ironically. Uh, House Republicans is very this uh, impeachment efforts are going to run into each other because Hunter Biden's supposed to testify in the House on huh. February 28th. So you could have both of those happening at the same time.
3: Well, we've got a calendar problem again here, uh, Billy, because it's recess time now. And by the looks of things, there's something like six legislative days left to avoid a government shutdown. And by the time they come back from recess, there will be only three. Do we need to start having a more serious conversation about this? I've been asking people every day and I keep hearing, oh, no, they'll figure this out. But uh, what, three weeks from tomorrow, we start shutting down?
7: Absolutely. I, uh, In fact, I asked last night senior appropriator Tom Cole, the rules chairman, uh, are we going to have a shutdown? He said emphatically no. But what what you are seeing when you see the calendar is uh, impeachment in the Senate, Hunter Biden in, uh, questioning over here in the House, and just a couple of days before a shutdown. They do have a lot of things going on when they return uh, later this month. Uh, a lot of them uh, self-imposed deadlines, and of course the government shutdown ones are kind of self-imposed. They're just, uh, you know, pick the can deadlines that were supposed to be resolved earlier this year.
3: Well, so speaking of kicking the can, is that what members think? Is that why everyone's convinced that we will not have a shutdown because the speaker will have to cave, do another continuing resolution, which he vowed not to do?
7: Hey, that's a good question. Uh, There there does seem to be a malaise or a lack of concern, and perhaps now we've just gotten into uh, a feeling that, uh, well, well, we can always do another CR. Now, that's what House conservatives get really irate over. Uh, But despite all their stomping and and fist pounding, they haven't really taken that out on the new Speaker Johnson yet.
3: Yeah. Well, we'll stay tuned, Billy. I I can't figure out how they're going to avoid this uh, at some point in the next several weeks. And we'll remind our viewers and listeners that the State of the Union would only be a couple of days after that. So these all overlap along with Super Tuesday. Billy House, great to see you reporting live from the Capitol Bloomberg News congressional reporter with love in the air today in Washington on this Valentine's Day. Too bad it's not helping the bipartisanship. Don Levy told us what was going to happen last week in the race in New York 3. He runs the Siena College poll. He's the director of the Siena College Research Institute And Don, it's great to see you. I'm glad you came back because we do have questions about the way this all came down. You were inundated with a big snowstorm up there yesterday and I'll remind everybody that this is the seat once held by George Santos. We were told that George Santos may have ruined the district for Republicans for some time. And it seemed to not be a great factor in this race, Don. It came down to a lot of national issues uh, like the border, uh, like spending, and it's been interesting, Israel, as well, to watch this whole thing shake out. He won by more than you thought, didn't he?
8: He did. Uh, Tom Swazi ended up winning by uh, just a little bit under eight points. We had him at about four points. And he overperformed, really, uh, relative to our poll in both the Queens component of the district, which is about 20 percent, actually showed up at the rate of only about 15 percent last night. Uh, and Nassau County, 80 percent of the district, voted at the rate of about 85 percent. And Tom Swasey is a known quantity within that district. He's been active in yeah. uh, Nassau County politics now going back 20 years. Um, so the voters there, uh, most especially in Nassau, but also in that small section of Queens, certainly knew him. He served three terms in Congress. Uh, so they were uh, prepared last night to send Tom Swasey back to uh, Washington.
3: Well, Sienna did the work there, and I hope I hope you're, you're taking a victory lap today. Don, I wonder to what extent turnout factored into this. That's all we heard about all day was the weather.
8: Well, I think the weather did have some effect. As you know, uh, Democrats turned out uh, very strongly in the early voting. Uh, and when the early vote came out last night, you saw the Democrats and Tom Swasey take an enormous lead. Uh, Republicans do quite well in same day voting. But certainly there was just not enough same-day Republican vote. There's a couple of sections of the district, the southern section of the district, Massapequa, uh, Levittown, where the Republicans were a little unhappy with the degree to which they got turnout. In fact, they went out and hired uh, private snowplows to try to clear the roads to encourage <laughs> that turnout. Um, but they were a little bit deflated with the same-day turnout. And as a result, whereas we had Tom Swazi in our poll carrying Nassau by about a point, he ended up carrying Nassau by about five points. And to some effect, that was turnout. But I think there was more to it than that, actually. I think that this closing week of the uh, of the election and the buildup to this uh, special election, Tom Swazi did a fantastic job closing. He took the immigration mm-hmm. issue on head-on, what was seen as a weakness for Tom Swazi he ended up turning into a strength, perhaps in part aided by the bill in the Senate actually dying, the bipartisan bill, which he said he was a strong supporter of. Uh, Mozzie Phillips said that she was opposed to that. That didn't play well with this uh, bipartisan spirit that exists in New York 3.
3: Well, Donald Trump says it was all about him, Don. and I'm guessing you've seen the post by now referring to Mazi uh, Pillip as foolish. And he's, of course, making the case that she didn't use him enough or lean into MAGA. He says running in a race where she did not endorse me, tried to straddle the fence when she could have easily won if she understood anything about modern day politics in America. To what extent was there a Trump factor or or lack thereof? in New York three.
8: Well, our polling continued to show that, that Donald Trump was unpopular in the district, uh, about as equally unpopular as Joe Biden. I think that's a bit of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. Mozzie Pillup did straddle the fence, though, and and really, I think, uh, didn't close strongly because of that. Um, you know, her position on uh, a national abortion ban, you know, and and Previously in New York, abortion, while an important issue, didn't seem quite as salient because in New York, uh, most people feel as though a woman's right to choose is is sacrosanct, but to the degree that Mozzie Phillips was identified as potentially being a vote for a national abortion ban and not really taking a a razor uh, clear position on that, that hurt her in, Mm -hmm. in, in the final week. Santos on the other side, excuse me, Swazi on the other hand, um, took a very strong position on abortion. And so between that classic Democratic position of support for uh, abortion rights, um, as well as Swazi taking the immigration issue on head on, uh, allowed him yeah. to close very strongly in the race.
3: Well, he's got some people calling this the recipe to win uh, for Democrats here in November. Don, I wonder your thoughts on that, because he called out Republicans on that border plan that collapsed the compromise that never got a vote in the House? Is that going to be the model going forward?
8: Well, certainly, I think in, in swing districts, and we've got about five of them here in New York, um, this idea of getting something done, whether it's getting something done on the border, which is paramount right now, but getting something done across the board. The issue could be Ukraine. It could be Israel. It, it could be keeping the government open. Tom Swazi did a great job saying I am a bipartisan, hardworking representative, and getting something done is what has to happen. So when you look to a couple of the other districts in Long Island, a couple of the districts in the, in the Hudson Valley, certainly the Republicans who occupy those seats right now are taking notice mm-hmm. uh, and, and are going to have to pay attention to how Tom Swasey closed against Mozzie Billup, including saying, immigration, I'm for a bipartisan agreement. Let's get something done. That worked for him talking with
3: Don Levy of the Siena College Research Institute as we look ahead to uh, to fall and this is going to be a quick turnaround here Donald Trump said something else in his post give us a real candidate in the district for November swazi i know him well can be easily beaten and i wonder your thoughts on what republicans might do as an answer to what happened here uh, for the full blown election but also the extent to which redistricting could play into this, because it's supposed to go back to making this an easier fight for a Tom Swazi or any Democrat, isn't it?
8: It is redistricting is still a little bit up in the air here in New York. Uh, There's talk that there's a compromise. I think that this particular district uh, will end up uh, being, if not safe, I think this will be uh, a lean Democratic district. And Tom Swazi is going to look pretty secure, more than likely, uh, New York State uh, Democrats, the, the excuse me, Republicans who are interested in holding some of these other seats are going to look to the other couple of districts on Long Island, as well as the Hudson Valley districts, to try to hold those, and probably are going to end up conceding this district. Mozzie Pillip has said mm. she's going to run. There could be a couple of other Republicans who are going to throw their hat in. But right now, New York 3 looks like it's Tom Swasey's to hold.
3: I've only got a minute left on. I don't want to set you up here, but I wonder if you buy the the bellwether talk this morning, the extent to which New York 3 is unique or something we can read into nationally.
8: Again, I I don't think we can help ourselves. Uh, We're going to read into it, but it was a special election, Uh, had a slightly more than 25 percent turnout. These are the most engaged voters. Democrats have been doing well uh, in these special elections. Um, but as far as a bellwether, it's something to look at. It doesn't necessarily uh, foreshadow exactly what's going to happen, because as you know, there's going to be a thousand and one things that are going to happen between now and November. <laughs> and Donald yep. Trump and Joe Biden will be on the ballot then, not only Tom Swasey.
3: Now, keep that in mind when you hear talk of bellwether throughout the day, because Don knows what he's talking about. Really glad you can come back to talk to us. Don Levy is director of the Siena College Research Institute, the man who called the race for us last week. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe, if you haven't already, at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.